Hello, friends. Welcome to Alfie Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. The date is Thursday, the 8th of July. My name is Alex Okili, and I'm here present in the same room looking at and almost in touching distance of George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe, which is quite exciting. Hello, guys. Hey. Yeah, that's quite quite an intro. <laughs> it's quite exciting, <laughs> almost yeah. touching distance. Almost, Incredible. But, it's um, it's very unusual. I think this is we must have done maybe five episodes in the same in the same room. So at ma- max, I would yeah, say, out of two hundred. Yeah, Jim. Well, two hundred and three or whatever this is. We, now. Actually yeah. to, we actually have to look at each other. It's it's, it's, <laughs> it's disconcerting. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, these very sly visual cues we're giving each other. Is, um, <laughs> what do you mean? I can't read body language. I'm... Anyway, so this is a... I'm three... a podcaster. <laughs> yeah, it's just an automaton. Uh, uh, this is a three articles, which is, if you're not familiar, is a type of episode where we each bring an article to discuss on a completely different theme uh, from different sources, and we discuss them. So it's a bit of a show and tell. And uh, we've actually got quite a big range of themes to discuss today, and that are all international, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it. We are talking about the Chinese economy. We're talking about uh, Switzerland in the EU or out of the EU. And we're talking about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, and we're going to start, I think, more or less in that order. So uh, George is going to talk about the first one. Yeah, we're going to. I think we'll do it probably in exactly that order, in fact. Um, yeah, so I, the first one is... Is mine. It's from the FT and it's uh, titled What Happens If Chinese Household Wealth Is Unleashed on the World from the 6th of July 2021 by Thomas Hale and Tabby Kinder. So, yeah, I'm, I thought this was a, a you know really interesting article about essentially the capital controls that are in China. Um, currently, Chinese citizens are able to take $50,000 out of the country annually. Um, other than that, they, you know, it has to stay within uh, within the PRC and this had previously been biased towards spending uh, particularly on education and uh, investment in in um, in their children um, so like private education yeah private education um, some interesting sort of bubbles about how do you uh, make this um, is there a way to get around <clears throat> this 50 grand limit is there ways that you can um, that you can kind of pay consultants of various sorts to to get your your kids into the into the best schools. Um, obviously, very important in the in the uh, intensely meritocratic uh, education system at the higher end of Chinese society. But anyway, the article talks about a review potentially to change this, and I think just some something about the scale of the um, of of this um, sort of thing. The uh, estimate by HSBC is that Chinese households will have. 300 trillion renminbi which is 46.3 trillion dollars us dollars of investable assets by 2025 so this is equivalent to the entire us bond market um and i think the so the conclusion of the article is that any opening up so any ability for chinese citizens to invest abroad um will be extremely gradual um but it but it's possible i think this is what the this article talks about that there's a possibility for the capital controls on the investments of the rising Chinese middle class to be lifted. Um, and yeah, so that's that's the basic uh, premise of, of the article. It also notes the very high savings rate um, of Chinese um, citizens compared to the rest of the world. And there's some interesting points as well, I think, on Hong Kong as a kind of a gateway between um, the the mainland and the rest of the world. So yeah, so this, this was my choice for uh, three articles this month, this time let's just say 
So like the implication of all this is basically there's huge savings. I mean, of you know the 1.6 billion Chinese, uh, obviously a small proportion of that actually has uh, household savings, but the savings rate in China is much higher, right, than yeah. than in most advanced countries. Yeah, and, and that money has to go somewhere. Yeah, and the economy, um, and also just the amount of um, wealth that has been built up in China as the economy has grown and expanded, and that it's all um, compressed essentially. Um, because the Chinese don't want to, they're slowly, the Chinese Communist Party is slowly moving towards liberalization of its um, financial institutions within China. Yeah. So, but on the one hand, they're afraid of uh, hot money off the back of the Asian financial crisis. So money flooding in if they liberalize. Yeah. And they also want very tight control over what Chinese households do with their cash. And so it's a slow kind of drip, drip experimental way in which they're very slowly liberalizing. Yeah. I suppose from my point of view, I guess what's, um, I mean, the numbers are always ever with China and China, the Chinese economy. The numbers are just absolutely outstanding in terms of the, um, the best, out, very, uh, sorry, very good. Astounding, numbers. not outstanding. <laughs> the, um, I'm a bit slow today. The, um, yeah. So the enormity of everything is always kind of, uh, you know, really striking yeah like you just let a little bit of money out and suddenly it actually amounts to a huge yeah, flood yeah. Of, of of finance kind of yeah laying onto the, the world economy yeah i guess there were two things that struck me then kind of for the long run is one is the um the banks that are essentially i mean as far as i could tell reading between the lines or maybe it was just even explicit but that the large western banks who are um engaging basically in loss saving sorry uh, losing operations um, in order because they're banking on the liberalization, which they'll be in a position to benefit from further down the road yeah. through laying the ground now, even though it's very expensive for them. And I suppose the upshot of that is then you have Western banks, large Western banks that are still, despite the growing kind of um, geopolitical tensions and uh, trade wars between West and East, they're still deeply invested and they will lobby governments to get access to all that Chinese money. Um, and the other other end of it, I guess, is the Chinese middle classes. How much will they bridle against um, the restrictions of the Chinese Communist Party if they want to have kind of uh, better returns on their investment abroad, yeah. more, more secure pensions, more secure financial assets, better growth? Um, and how far there's friction there? And yeah. um, that the article didn't really go into. Yeah, so I think there are two two things that the article doesn't really go into, but are the kind of the real implications of this. And the first is what are the forma what what are, what are the current in, uh, effects of the capital controls that are in place on, I guess, the formation of of Chinese of the Chinese bourgeoisie, if you want to put it that way, um, in the context of the you know the, the sort of state capitalism that that China has. And secondly, what would be the effects of liberalizing these these capital controls? And you touch on this. There's you have these fund managers who become who become fantastically wealthy. You can sort of you can almost hear them uh, salivating in the in the article because the, yeah, the numbers are absolutely gigantic, and the the any opening up there creates a massive opportunity for any intermediaries to make a, a ton of money. Um, but yeah, I mean the on the other side, the uh, potential destabilizing. Uh, influence to the world economy uh, or the the flooding of international accounts um you know could this collapse the the renminbi could could this collapse the chinese currency um you know there, i think there's there's a lot of implications of this and i think this the article is kind of right to to the extent that it, it concludes that any change would have to be very slow because the the, the it risks the the chinese communist party losing control 
um, to a certain extent. If this, this, if people are able to invest this money over um, overseas, you know, what what does that do in terms of the the Chinese state's ability to control investment, its its ability to you know to to control the the rising middle class within within China? The more that they invest ex- in externally overseas, might lead to a kind of a, a slightly different orientation to the to the kind of nation led. A development program that's been extremely yeah. successful in China in the past, and the decades. Chinese state develops an interest in um, overseas kind of control of overseas assets in a way that it thus far has only had for control of resources mm. or access to resources, and so that would change the way in which it would relate to the outside world in theory. So, and also like that reference to sort of iterative trial and error form mm. of policy making where they loosen you know, open the gates just ever so slightly, raise the limit to which, uh, you know, Chinese can invest abroad. It reminded me, of course, of our recent episode with Isabella Weber yeah. talking about mm. uh, th- that whole reform and opening up moment in the in the late 1980s, which was precisely this iterative process. At the same time, this article makes kind of reference to looming storm clouds in different ways. And so one of them is uh, the ballooning corporate debt levels in China. And the other is the asset price bubbles that you have now with property prices completely yeah. ballooning as well. And this is also one of these things where they're having to manage to you know, keep different plates spinning at the same time. So they want to open up. And so this money doesn't keep getting reinvested into a domestic property market, yeah. mm-hmm. inflating that bubble. And so to put that money out, but then there's, we've already, you know, as Phil was already talking about the, the sort of the downside risk of that on the other hand. And so it's a, something very tricky to manage. And there's always, just to put it in the broader context, this sense of like, China keeps growing, but at some point there's going to be a crisis, right? And you yeah. don't know when that's going to be. And and yeah. uh, you yeah. could probably have that conversation five years ago. You could have one now. You might be still talking about it in five years <clears> for a crisis <throat> yeah. which hasn't come, but we but it will yeah. come. And so. that was it will, I guess. But that was the takeaway, I think, both from this article and also from the um, discussion we had with Isabel about um, uh, the Chinese economic policy in the eighties was just the um, the skill. Um, both kind of, you know, political, administrative, uh, that the Chinese state and the Chinese Communist Party with which they've um, managed um, and finessed this process of growth mm. um, is, you know, it's uh, it's remarkable um, that they've managed to do it so effectively thus far. Mm. And that was, um, I think, the more or less the conclusion of the article as well. Mm. Yeah. It was, um, you know, it, it kind of uh, accepted that the, there will be kind of bumps in the road but that on the basis of its past record, the Chinese Communist Party will probably be able to keep hold of the steering wheel. So, yeah, I mean, I guess one one thing that I probably should have said a little bit more in the introduction is <clears throat> just like imagine if there were capital controls um, of, of, of this sort in place in the US or the UK or, or you know, wherever the listener is, is based. Um, I mean, it's 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 quite a surprising system, like in, in, in an international comparison that you have like only fifty thousand dollars that you can t- you can invest overseas. Like, what what does that mean for like the the um, so the the holder of the the holder of stock is a proprietor of, of the world as uh, no the proprietor of stock is a citizen of the world as Adam Smith said in Wealth of Nations, mm. book five, chapter two, part two, maybe possibly maybe it, 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 it is uh, anyway. You can find that on Marx. Uh, you can find that on Marxists.org. Just um. There you go. Anyway, uh, so yeah, so but what, what does that mean that you've had this rising um, Chinese middle class who have 
not been able to to, to become citizens of the, of the world in that Smithian sense by um, owning stock of overseas yet. companies. Like, yet. Yeah. How would that change? So yeah, that, I mean, that, I, that I think is... I mean, well, there, is, the, but there, is a, there is a Chinese citizen of the world. I mean, there's an enormous Chinese diaspora, like in every major city, there's yeah. a Chinatown. And that's a, but that's a different kind of citizen of the world than someone who lives in China or is wealthy and wants know. education. It's, it's the citizen of uh, one dollar one vote or you know fifty thousand dollars plus and you know fifty thousand. Yeah, votes. yeah, I don't. So know I mean, they if... they interviewed. So they interviewed a guy though, like um, so someone yeah. who studied um, an IT worker who studied in um, Glasgow. Yeah. And um, on the basis of ex- experience, you know, he is interested in investing abroad. He's a wealthy young Chinese guy. Um, and that's different from the kind of the citizen of the world that is a member of the Chinese diaspora in, you know, kind of um, essentially service sector stuff in Chinatowns it's, around the world. Is the difference between uh, a cosmopolitan and a um, diasporic expat? Diasporic yeah, ex- yeah, and that is an important that is an important one. Anyway, I think the the article is essentially, you know, it's it's raising this as a possibility, right? And it's not saying, you know, this is going to, it's going to change everything overnight. Um, the, you know, I don't think the CCP would do that. And of course, in the previous episode, we, you know, we learned about trial and error policy successes. So yeah, just something for our listeners um, to think about. From the People's Republic of China and uh, overseas investments to the People's Republic of Switzerland, uh, a place which obviously receives many uh, investments and uh, and people's yeah, indeed and a, and a People's Republic for which um, we have more uh, more sympathy because it is much more of a genuine People's Republic. Well, we have we have somebody with uh, lived experience of being indeed, Swiss. Indeed, we do. Who should really yeah. We should send. So this his is voice, actually I my think. this is actually my um, I'm going to talk over our um, our Swiss <laughs> contributor because this is actually my article. So it's a blog post in Sidecar, which is the um, the blog of New Left Review by Wolfgang Streeck, the uh, German um, professor, um, friend of the pod. And um, what it's about is uh, it's about Swexit. So recently, Switzerland repudiated a framework agreement with the European Union, which was intended to systematize a whole series of bilateral agreements, treaties and so on, arrangements, which have developed in the course of managing the um, relationship between the European Union and Switzerland. And so, I mean, it's not, Switzerland is not a member, has not been a member of the European Union. So um, Swexit is kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of a gloss on the process. But essentially that the framework agreement would have um, locked Switzerland as into the position of being a subordinate, a satellite of this larger um, entity, and that effectively the relationship was a hegemonic and imperial one, and the Swiss repudiated it, and that this was an inevitability given the structure of Switzerland's democratic politics, that it's so decentralized, yeah. the cantons have so much um, control, and that the central government is so weak. Um, and at the same time, though, that so much of Swiss political life is determined by plebiscite and by direct democracy, and that Swiss citizens have um, a much greater degree of control. And it's a great piece. Um, and what I guess um, the takeaway, I guess, uh, what was interesting for me was the, um, well, particularly interesting for me, was um, the what it seems the claim is essentially that I think, and I think this is a safe one to make, that Switzerland and Britain, as having um, uh, repudiated the European Union, um, enjoy a particular kind of political status within Europe. 
Um, and in particular that they're seeking to establish their independence separate from this increasingly kind of um, centralized and imperial structure. And that tells you something about domestic politics in those two countries. Um, and um, there is one point that Streak made, which I thought is um, really interesting and not just of academic interest, but genuinely important, I think, which is so he, I mean, he, I mean, I've given his account of why Switzerland repudiated the European Union, given its internal domestic structure. But he says for Britain, the way Britain, um, that Britain's kind of majoritarian political system um, as a as a legacy of um, the English Revolution and the establishment of parliamentary supremacy, um, that it requires a particular kind of sovereignty. There was a problem resolved by Britain by having an empire. So the question of British sovereignty and its relations with other nations have never been dealt with or confronted in that way because of Britain's imperial position, hegemonic position in relation to so many other countries. And so the that the issue of British popular, the kind of the popular character of or the popular basis of British sovereignty has been um, disguised for a while. And the Swiss have resolved it by being um, tradition historically resolved it by being neutral. So, Phil, this was the second uh, time that you've you've chosen a strike article. So that's two strikes, a third strike and you're out. Um, <laughs> so but, <laughs> yeah, people are laughing. Um, <laughs> Who's laughing? Okay, I'm laughing. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Your people. Um, so, no, I guess one of the, the things just I think we should talk about quickly at the, at the top is like, what is like, what is Switzerland? Um, not it's a, like it's a country. Like, what does it represent? I guess because the there was an, an article linked at the bottom of the blog to an an older New Left Review article from 1969, which called Switzerland the bourgeois Eldorado. Um, a haven for international capital, an embodiment of the petty bourgeois spirit and a challenge to Marxist theory on the national question. So I think it's kind of interesting. I mean, that, that third point relates a little bit to the point that Strake made about how the um, British Empire was kind of an externalisation of, of some of these points around um, the contradictions of all the, the points around sovereignty that you but, made. But Strake, but he appends that, right? So he appends that El Dorado thing because the points he makes are that part of the reason the Swiss have repudiated the EU is because the Swiss labor organized labor movement yeah. um, is anti-EU, unlike in um, in the case of Britain and in many other countries. So what, what I was going to say is that it's interesting then that this bourgeois El Dorado and the kind of Singapore on Thames um, that we have in this country, in, in the UK, are the two... Um, well, those are the ways that they're characterised often. These are the two, uh, in some ways, leading uh, nations of Europe in terms of their um, uh, relationship to the EU. One has left yeah. and one won't swentry, which is a, a word that I hadn't... No. Swiss entry. Um, so, yeah. So it's more but, of a preemptive Swexit, I think, is, is the way to... Well, I, mean, the, 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 I guess the thing, like what you're alluding to, is neither Britain nor Switzerland are particularly popular countries were particularly sympathetic their struggles to remain out of or to leave uh, the eu I'm, I'm, hang sorry. on hang on hang on to leave okay. the eu viewed from abroad is often even people who might be generally kind of sympathetic if they're to uh, or, or you know democrats basically will look at britain and you know it think see the misrepresentation of brexit as like oh just imperial nostalgia and in switzerland they'll see what streak re refers to as the swiss either being bad or mad so bad in the sense of they don't want to uh, share their riches with other countries or mad because they don't see their true interests uh and their true interest being you know collaboration within the yeah. eu and 
what's good about this is that it actually points out that, like Switzerland's maybe not such a bad place. Uh, there's many criticisms we could make, and maybe we'll get on to some of that. But the fact of one, it's a democratic uh, constitution is something that's good and should be held on to. And two, the fact that the reason it, it's supposed unwillingness to share its riches is actually workers not wanting to give up on high wages, which is a good thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the point that I wanted to make to when I was going to interrupt there is I don't think that, that Britain is, is not popular. <laughs> I think I think people love um, Britain and particularly the constituent nations and particularly, I would say, England and particularly, <laughs> I would say, the England football team <laughs> that uh, won gloriously <sighs> against Denmark last night this is gonna be funny because this is gonna obviously come out after the final (laughs) so so, is it coming home george i'm yeah i'm putting my neck on the line no so it's 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 come home already and we just need to we need to keep it it's not home over the course of the final i think we will find that it was always already home home. (laughs) that was my joke that's that's like a paulo Paulo coelho interpretation of of football you know you go looking (laughs) for football everywhere and it was home all along exactly uh, anyway, oh. so that was that was literally the joke that I made. But back to Switzerland. Anyway, yeah. so the um, actually I didn't have a, I didn't have a serious point other other than that you know people hate on these countries but maybe they hate on them because they're jealous. Well, but he makes he makes the, the point, but he makes the point that it's um, you know the part of the reasons the snootiness even among within the kind of the left liberals of Switzerland, who he says you know are expatriates in uh, in Germany and so on. Um, they're embarrassed by Switzerland's um, the kind of the intransigence and stubbornness of Swiss voters not extending in some parts of Switzerland the franchise to women until the 70s yeah. the embarrassment of the votes over um, minarets and uh, migration and all of these things that are in fact um, you know testimony to um, I mean it's the, the stubbornness of voters and um, and, it, and it can be a, and genuinely a provincial and kind of yeah. small minded place yeah. like but it is nonetheless at the same time testimony to um, the uh, democratic self-confidence of um, Swiss citizens. And to that extent, I think, you know, it was a rousing trumpet blast um, for popular self-government and well contrasted with the um, well contrasted with the link to the older uh, New Left Review article. The other point he makes, which I think is a good one, is um, Switzerland's effectiveness. So despite all of his decentralization, he said, you know, they've uh, they built that section of tunnel much more efficiently and quickly and, un, you know, within budget compared to the European and on, Union. And on, on time as on well, time, yeah. because they, they are very, you know, punctual people. They are with, punctual people. With watches that Not work all of their citizens, well. not all of their citizens, but some well, of their we citizens. We have listeners in Switzerland who are rolling their, their eyes at us right now, I'm sure. But anyway, I, but I, what's interesting, though, is having after having read that piece, I read it, something recently which someone posted about uh, Switzerland undoing its nuclear power plants. Um, you know, kind of shutting them down. And part of the problem, as the article explained, this is another article, uh, is that Switzerland is so federalized that it's very difficult to get anything done. And basically, you have a huge veto power of the NIMBY, of the, you know, not in my backyard constituency. So if you don't want something to be built or something to happen positively, you can stop it. So even one person can petition their their cantonal authorities to have something stop, to stop something being built. And, you know, you need approval both at the federal level, at different agencies, you know, for the environment and the energy agency, whatever, and at the cantonal level and so on. Um, So that, you know, that level of 
you know, you don't, I don't want to say that democracy stops uh, you getting things done. That's not the point I'm trying to make. But the particular form that uh, Swiss democracy takes is sometimes is an impediment to will formation at a mm-hmm. national level. Yeah. So, yeah, I, on, on slightly related to this, I think one of the things that strikes articles are always really good on is the understanding of the the kind of the national class forces and how they how they work and it's very impressive like a bit like perry anderson's like how do you know all this stuff um but his account i think of the support for for swentry uh, was that it's this coalition of export oriented manufacturing and this new class of left liberals um, and he notes that in Britain, that coalition was joined by part of the trade union movement, which was hoping for protection from Brussels against an untamed conservative parliamentary majority for less than fully intelligible reasons in light of the dismal social policy performance of Brussels. And I think this is nicely put. Yeah, it's, it's, it is quite nicely put. And I think the, you know, that it, it just shows that there is a, you know, that the, the orientation to the EU is there is a, there is a, a class and material aspect as well as obviously what what Strake himself has talked about the sacralization of the EU which I think we'd we'd all um, be be fairly um, could could bring to mind quite uh, quite easily in terms of the experience of the past uh, few years so yeah and I think the you know one thing that he's he or he, he notes this slogan which I hadn't heard from the Greens of uh, in Germany in the 90s dear foreigners do not leave us alone please do not leave us alone with the Germans and <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just incredible isn't yeah it? it's like this pu- Puritan narrowness and this kind of dislike of the of the domestic um, populace which which is you well, know of your own citizens of your own of your yeah, fellow citizens exactly and I think that's shot through a lot of kind of um, a lot of contemporary contemporary politics particularly I don't okay. want to just talk about the football but I was at that's why my voice is quite hoarse I was at Wembley last night and you know I saw some I saw some bad tweets man about people you know just people being like oh look at these bad people celebrating this this stupid little game um well, well that, that was me yeah yeah okay and also <laughs> sorry when i said tweets i meant whatsapp messages um a lot i think a lot of people wanted wanted us to fail um and they were disappointed and you can't see but i'm looking at phil because he wanted us to fail and it's because i want i just, I just hope we went on sunday I want otherwise i'll look like such a paul idiot when this comes out i want paul west what is it paul west joseph what is his name Paul Joseph, wait the the old right guy. Yeah, the conspiracy theorist. Yeah, Prison Planet, whatever. Yeah, his name is. whatever. Anyway, but he, you know, he says like any team that takes the knee is too cuck to win, and he said they'd be kicked out early. So that's been disproven so far. But I England still... took, took the knee and Denmark didn't, and yeah, you know, but Italy and don't take the knee. Either. Ironically, then Denmark so captain scored no goal with about his knee pretty much and so. knee, apparently the, had the a laser knee, pointer f- in his yeah. face as well no, that was yeah so, I, d- I, you know. I didn't see that and i thought it was a penalty in the ground and, and it wasn't but anyway yeah we're getting sidetracked yeah we are, we are getting sidetracked this was really about this is a sidecar well anyway um what's the main car is the nlr the the, the main, main car? car i guess yeah it's a great anyway it's a great piece and i strongly um i like the kind of the the con the contrast between britain and switzerland and their um their uh relationships with the EU. Well worth reading. Yes, indeed. So, uh, final article. It's mine. It's Next up. Uh, a piece in the Daily Mail. Uh, we haven't ever chosen a piece from the Daily Mail. The reason I've, I've chosen it is because it has lots of pictures 
which is nice. Everyone likes pictures. Particularly, particularly on a podcast. Particularly on a podcast. <laughs> Especially, they're going to listen to my poetics and trying to describe these pictures. I'm not going to do that very much at all. But you, with the you article... You should do. You should, you know, a, a thousand words is worth a picture. So why not just... <laughs> yeah. There's like yeah, 10 just, pictures in there. So just you've got 10,000 words. Okay, Take here we go. Here we go. So it's, a, it's about the US leaving Afghanistan. Not just leaving Afghanistan, but leaving it overnight, basically. Uh, they just took up and left in the middle of the night... And the Afghan... Well, Bagram uh, specifically. Sorry, excuse me. Yeah, Bagram Air, Bra- Air Base, which is their main headquarters in the country. Uh, they picked up and left and didn't inform their Afghan uh, supposed partners until they turned up the next day and were like, oh, they've all gone. And the pictures... And so the reason I chose this article, because it's a it's a basic news article, um, with one interesting little tidbit about the history of Bagram Air Base, which was the Soviet's base, which was then left in 1990, and then the U.S. took it over. Um, but the rest of the, the, the piece is, is fairly straightforward. The pictures really paint a picture. Um, or the pictures really? paint a picture. That's, it's That's interesting incredible. how that's possible. Yeah. <laughs> they, all, they paint lots of words, I guess, yeah. is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and they, just of the... It has this element of like after the day after um, Burning Man or something, yeah. you know, where this thing was this huge city, uh, you know, fortified city was created and then it just disappears the next day. And it, in a way, it is a picture of vandalism, I guess. It almost looks like a, a place that's been vandalized and, and dereliction. Exactly. And they left it behind I a mean, bunch of stuff. There are worse things the Americans did in Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah. But, but I think, but it, you know, the metaphor is obvious. I don't need to spell it out too much, but it's like the, the Americans came in, set up shop, and then just left overnight and left a bunch of crap behind. Didn't tidy their mess, right? Now, there's a kind of conservative, even like neocon interpretation of that, which is like the U.S. should have finished the job. And that was always the argument about the U.S., about them, them they could, and the argument that they made for themselves, the, the American authorities, of we can't just leave overnight because the job's not done. But of course, it's completely unclear with the job was what because finish, it, it and should, what finishing the job and what finishing mean, with the yeah. job would mean because it's like does it mean that the Taliban are completely defeated does it mean it's set up a stable state does it mean that women have rights does it mean that it's just basically stable some have been like exactly it's, so, al- it's almost like if you don't have any like remit to start with then you'll, you'll never know up, when you'll it's end so. up exactly. fighting forever yeah. yeah yeah and I think so just as a couple of takeaways from this and we can discuss a little bit more but it's that the US has lost yet another war and this was its longest ever war uh, 20 years nearly and this idea, and it also paints a picture of, of the contemporary form of imperialism, which uh, neither implants itself and tries to colonize a country, but but nor does it, nor is it the kind of surgical intervention that it, it, it imagines itself to be. So um, you have this kind of half-assed um, intervention, hugely costly in human mm. life and in, and in in economic terms, but which doesn't really seem to achieve anything. It just treads water for 20 years and then leaves yeah. yeah just just to give a bit of background on this on this base specifically so at its peak it had a hundred thousand um us and nato troops and it's now got zero it was america's main main base there it had a pizza hut and a subway and a green beans coffee shop i don't know what green beans is but i'm sure our american les- listeners will know i'm sure it's probably crap coffee anyway yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and it had robin williams jay leno and kid rock um, I don't know all at the same time that would have probably been a bit too much for people to take but they were all they were all there and they they left behind like 3.5 million th- sorry three three and a half million items it's like ranging from like ammunition and small arms to like cars without keys um like, yeah it's just it's just absolutely staggering they were just, they they ghosted 
Afghanistan and and the and the um, the security forces there. They were basically like, right, we need to go. Like, just switch off it's the gonna phone. Turn up like, hey, babe, um, can I get my guitar back? <laughs> yeah. I. It's like no dickhead, get out. No, it's basically like yeah, switch the phone off, and then they, when when they'd landed in the US, switch it back on. <laughs> Loads of missed calls, and just be like, yeah, I'm 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 back home now. See you never. So the photos are worth looking at because it's lots of um, kind of you know Afghan shopkeepers uh, draped over the um, all the stuff that they've kind of looted and picked up, like basketballs and Kevlar body armor, and uh, yeah, the I don't know wiring and bits and pieces. But I guess the real question that struck me from thinking about this was why did the Americans leave in the night and not tell the Afghans? And I'm thinking, you know, so there's a number of reasons you could think for it. So, you know, it might be partly a security decision, assuming the Afghan kind of security forces are kind of riddled with uh, Taliban informants. Maybe they didn't want to let the Taliban know. On the other hand, you know, there was a huge crowd of looters apparently just waiting for the Americans to shut off the lights and to descend on the base. So I imagine lots of people already knew on the ground what was going on. And it's not exactly totally in the middle of nowhere. It's like an hour from Kabul. So Yeah, and also the Taliban have been observing a ceasefire um, since the US announced their withdrawal, which in which they've only been targeting Afghan national security forces and they've not been targeting NATO and the US troops. So there's no expectation to imagine mm. that they would have tried and caused trouble for the withdrawal. So if it's not that, then I thought, well, maybe it's to avoid any kind of flag lowering ceremonies or kind of um, helicopter out of Saigon kind of photos of desperate people trying to clamber, clamber on helicopters and maybe avoid any kind of um, symbolism which could be captured in newspaper and embarrass the kind of US government. But on the other hand, they left in the middle of the night. They didn't tell their local allies. And the whole thing appears, you know, it's still kind of uh, slinking away with your tail between your legs. It's an, it's astonishing. I think that's exactly it. I think that's a good argument. I think that's a good case you're making for why they left in the middle of the night. And actually, that's why some of these photos deserve to become iconic, I yeah. think, of the kind of Ameri- a picture of American vandalism and, and yeah, dereliction. Yeah, the detritus of empire. Exactly. And yeah, I, I think like that that picture is one which also runs against what they what was always the argument for why they couldn't just leave Afghanistan, right? So when anti-war yeah. campaigners would say, yeah. just get out, just get out. But it, no, no, but we have a job to finish. Da, 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 da. It's like, just get out. No, but it'll leave a more mess. Let, we're here now. We have a responsibility, blah, 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 blah. Just get out, right? And they said, no, we can't do that. But they did just get out. I mean, yeah. they yeah. did just leave overnight. And yeah. you kind of think, well, that could have been done, you yeah. know, yeah. And 17 it's, years it's, ago. Yeah, it's interesting because like, the, the Pentagon, even like their assessment is that the there's a medium risk that the Afghan government and its security forces will collapse within the next two years. I think that's what we're understating. I mean, <laughs> yeah. all, so, the, all the reporting says that like the Taliban will gain control pretty the, quickly. Yeah, so it's like the there is, there is some sort of... Um, I guess there there is something going on there that their own rationale, their own intelligence um, is it's pointing one way, and that is we've heard these arguments so so frequently over the last however many years. And then the reality is, yeah, just to avoid getting um, which which actually could have been quite quite iconic, some photos of you know some GIs packing stuff up and or, or I don't know, or just lowering the flag, lowering right? the flag, or you know I don't know. You could you can imagine there just being some like. There's a there's a basketball hoop and yeah, they're, they're it's, kind not, of, it's not quite the mission accomplished yeah. mission yeah. accomplished moment. It's the mission is dot 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 is yeah. over me. <laughs> yeah, but, but to, and to, to avoid that, they've they've gone against I guess what what could have been but, the very they... like minimal 
continual continued justification. But it ends up looking worse. Like you know, they slink away in the middle of the night, and then the base. You know, this happens to the base. I mean, it's so. And this was quite widely reported as well. I should note it. This isn't just some random little piece that I found. This was across. So apparently, Biden is going to make a make um, a statement, which seems like effectively it'll be damage control for all of this. There, but there is two things I think which are worth saying. Um, so I'm not sure. I mean, there were very few people who said leave immediately, I think, you know, and among the anti-war, um, so much of the anti-war opposition in terms of, you know, it was criticisms of uh, drone strikes um, or criticisms of the way in which the war was conducted or criticisms of U.S. unilateralism uh, or criticisms of the, you know, like they didn't have sufficient kind of uh, local cultural knowledge or whatever. Um and I remember, I mean, I remember back in 2001 when the U.S. invaded, it was so hard to make the case that the U.S. shouldn't invade. Um, yeah. Given the fact that Afghanistan had been the base for al-Qaeda, which the which had launched the attack on the Twin yeah. Towers and, um, and uh, the Pentagon in September 2001, the idea that there was uh, any alternative to um, some kind of vast military retribution and the need to kind of destroy al-Qaeda seemed kind of just, you know, it was seemed untenable. And yet here we are 20 years later and um, it's just been, the war on terror has been a total disaster, not least for Afghanistan itself. And not even that, the Taliban are going to be back in charge, the people who um, who the Americans um, overran in 2001. So I think that, you know, the, um, the fact that the... Um, that the uh, the opponents of military intervention um, were proved right, um, even if 20 years later, given how difficult it was to make the case against intervention back in 2001, I think that's um, I think that's worth bearing in mind. Yeah, though I mean I think the case for immediate withdrawal, you know, was made by anti-war campaigners. Maybe not Im- not immediately, not don't intervene because it could it was very hard to no. argue against what. Would have been seen well, I mean, is it as wasn't, a policing operation. It wasn't a uniform. It wasn't a uniform kind of demand um, across the anti-war movement as a whole. No, sure, but the the American authorities responded as if that had been the demand. It's like, no, you're you're demanding something that is irresponsible. We're there now. We need yeah. to finish this. I mean, job. I think it's 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 quite clear that there's you know leaving in this way it is indicates a a complete lack of interest in taking any responsibility. Um, either for the for the future of Afghanistan or for the, you know, for the costs of the of the intervention itself. So I don't think there will be any coming to terms, any like any holding to account. I think, you know, America probably just wants to forget it, and yeah, you know, right, and so Biden will be and a defeat. Yeah, and but, Biden will be like, well, you know, we had to do something, and we did something, and it worked. And now we're gone and it's not our, you know, kind of wash our hands, yeah. not our problem anymore. But they're, so and they but, can do whatever they like. But so they're meeting Trumpian criticisms of uh, US foreign policy that landed, you know, effectively. And so they're trying to claim credit for what was essentially kind of a Trumpian foreign policy initiative. Bring, bring the tro- troops home. Bring the troops home. So they kept the troops bring out. Bring the troops home. They kept the troops, they kept the troops out and now they can claim credit for this. So they kind of pulled the rug out from the Trumpian critique of US foreign policy. You don't need the war on terror because you now got an even better war against an invisible enemy um, that will carry on for years and years and years. A very, yeah, very small enemy of the people. A very small enemy. uh, So you get a biosecurity state instead of the, um, instead of the war on terror state. And I suppose the other thing as well is the, um, you know, the uh, how long will the Afghan, the kind of Af- the U.S. puppet government in Kabul last? So the Soviet, when did the, the Taliban swept in? Well, so it's a question there, right? So everyone assumed that the pro-Soviet government in Kabul would collapse immediately. Hmm. The Soviets withdrew in 89. 
Um, I think the Taliban came in in 97, 96, so it lasted about six or seven years before it was overturned. Um, and I so imagine what, so what's I would... Your, what's your over-under? So I would say that it will last less. I would say maybe, yeah, probably about two years would be my guess, the Pentagon's kind of estimate. And I think it would probably last less because the... And this is kind of a bit of history, I guess, but I think, I mean, my guess, you know, this is the way I read the situation is I think the Afghan Communist Party actually had a base in um, the Afghan kind of urban middle classes. And this is what allowed it to... Um, they also played off all the tribal kind of militants against each other, and that's what allowed it to survive for a while. Whereas I think that base has probably totally been shredded. So what will be left in Kabul will be the kind of... Um, you know, it'll be an NGO base. It won't be the kind of the developmentalist um, Afghan middle classes who vested their hopes in communism to develop Afghanistan. It'll be a kind of externally oriented NGO base, and I think that'll be a less solid structure of support for um, the government to hold on to urban centers. And so I think it'll probably collapse more quickly. Good point. You should just nationalize the opium production and, uh, you know, build export-led development, right? There. You've got to take over. You've got to take over that to be able to nationalize it. That would be opium, yeah. no, but the, the, opium the, the, of the masses, for the masses, <laughs> there you by go. the masses. Just to return quickly to, to these images, because I think that's what, you know, I found most interesting about this piece and the kind of the metaphorical aspects of it, which is the the argument about the war on terror and all these interventions was that you could have this sort of seamless, casualty-free war with surgical interventions, which would quickly resolve shock and awe and the regime collapses and democracy springs forth and so on. And here you have the kind of flip side of that, but or some sort of mirror image of it, of this seamless, casualty-free ending of a war or you know departure from a country which is just happens overnight and it's almost like a kind of farcical rendition of what the uh, ideologues the neoconservative ideologues mm-hmm. imagined uh you know this kind of 21st century war on terror to be like mm. yeah and it's worth i mean donald rumsfeld who is so much of the uh, r.i.p architect R- yeah architect of rest the war on his. terror rest, yeah. in, rest his, in power is just yeah <laughs> He's just, yeah, he's uh, just recently died, kind of uh, expired appropriately um, around the rough, you know, around roughly the same time as the war on terror. I mean, we shouldn't exaggerate because the war on terror isn't ended, but one of its main um, theatres of battle, the Americans have kind of slunk away from and uh, the Islamists uh, looks like they're going to take over Afghanistan again. Yeah, I mean... This actually isn't a very significant point, um, <clears throat> but Subway is the chain or with the most number of um, number of stores in the world. So they have presumably one one fewer now, or maybe they will still be operating it. But uh, that's well, a bit, you know, is, bit of a bit of uh, factoid. Well, so I mean, that, this is this is why Subway is inferior because. You know, no two countries of McDonald's could ever go to war with one another, <laughs> uh, a certain theory held, whereas countries with Subway certainly could. So. I thought you were going to say it was inferior to Pret because I do like a Pret sandwich. What's wrong with Subway? Why is the snobbery against this hearty, hail, hearty and hail healthy um, um if you have if you have meat and bread, it should be a sandwich, cut diagonally, ideally. That's what you're, you know, that's that's the way to do it. I, think, I, I don't know what the snobbery against uh, Subway is. marinara is nice. I feel so nauseous every time I eat a Subway. I don't know what they put in there, it's got but more, it, there's something about it where I'm it's like... It's got more oh, fat and salt it's than your, a Big Mac. It's your, delic- it's your delicate cosmopolitan constitution. Mm. It lacks oomph and freshness. Yeah. <laughs> and it very much does. 
Uh, Oomph and Freshness, we hope you found that with us, uh, if this is your first time with us. Uh, just a couple of announcements, I guess. Uh, we have a book out. You probably know this already. It's called The End of the End of History, Politics in the 21st Century. It's out with zero books right now, and you can buy a copy from uh, all good and bad retailers. You know who I'm talking about. Um, so there's that, and we're also going to launch the book. In real life, uh, we can be almost in touching distance to one another, you and I, listener, uh, if that's of, of, of any interest. Um, we how much, are how much that... does it cost? Tell, yeah, no, it's tell our listeners it's how much it's it costs. Even better, even better. If you it's sign free. up to the $30 Patreon. <laughs> yeah. you, you definitely <laughs> get touching. Uh, we're going to be doing that in London on the 24th of July. That's a Saturday. If you're in London or around the southeast of England, do uh, do travel in, come see us, uh, have a drink with us, come celebrate. Uh, it'll be a little uh, book launch slash bunga party. It's at, and it'll be uh, just by Russell Square Tube. The information is in the show notes. Uh, it's also on our Facebook page and so on. Uh, so do join us. We hope to see you there and uh, get to know you in person. That'll be fun. Uh, also, finally, if you do like uh, this three articles, we do plenty of these on Patreon. And if you're interested in signing up, it's patreon.com slash bungacast. You know what the score is by this stage. All right, that's it from us for now. Uh, catch you later. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. There's just you know you gotta be just right in there. No, I I I, I like to kind of imagine the listener hang back and feebly give no, a little the, wave. The, the listener's like just about to take off their headphones or pause and like, bye. Wait, wait, did you say something? Oh no, I was just saying bye. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> so, so so bye then. Yeah. So um. No, actually, never mind, never mind. I'll, 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 I'll tell you yeah, when I exactly next see right. you. I'll, uh, yeah, so bye-bye. Bye. Yes, the most annoying keep, way to end a conversation. Keep them on their toes. They think, they think it's all over. It is, it is now when I say bye. <laughs> anyway, there you go.